0: I wasn't quite sure how I was going to engage with the people on the street. I was nervous, I was intimidated, I was frazzled, I felt like a fish out of water. You see, a few years back when I was a college pastor, I took with me 15 college students on a mission trip To London, England. And the group that we were with had us do some tasks. And one of the projects that they had us do was to do street evangelism, which, you know, wasn't that big of a deal because we were used to doing, you know, evangelism on the campus and engaging with strangers that we didn't know. But their particular method of doing evangelism in London was a method that none of us have used. And so they were training us going, okay, there's going to be this table and it's going to be extremely busy. And so what we're going to ask you to do is take some of the pamphlets and brochures and tracks. And when people walk past you, just Handed out to them, and I was just like, "Oh, really? I'm gonna be that guy." Like I just, I had this mindset in my head. Like I, you know exactly what this is like because I know that probably 99% of you, if you're walking down like South Congress or something like that, or Sixth Street, if there's anybody out there handing you things, and you're walking down the street and you make eye contact them with about like let's say 15 feet, you immediately look down or try to walk away and ignore them because you don't want to grab whatever material they're giving you, or or you might be the nice one right? You grab the material, you act like you're thankful, you pretend to read it, and the next garbage can, you throw it away, right? Wow. (laughs) Okay, you can participate. You you can engage, right? It'll make everything better if you do, or at least for me. Okay, so it's like I was doing it, and I was so intimidated because we were like right down by Piccadilly Square in London, which is like Times Square, New York, busy people. They're trying to get places. They all got their earbuds in. They don't want to be interrupted, especially with someone handing them something right at like around noon. And so like, it was like failure after failure, after failure, after failure. And I was just like, this is so ineffective. Like I wasn't engaging with anyone. And there was a few who took some of the tracks, but literally within five feet, they just crumpled up and threw it on the ground. So I was determined. I said, the next person who walks past me, I'm going to make sure they grab the track. I do not care what I have to do to do it. And so sure enough, here, comes this guy he's wearing a three-piece suit you know he's decked out you can tell he's he's either going to work he's on lunch break got his earbuds in and he he made eye contact with me and i was like you're mine like i was so determined i was like you are not getting away and like he literally he he saw it and his nonverbals were clear like do not hand me that material i got in front of him Okay, I just walked right in front of him, and, and like, he looked at me. He politely rejected my invitation, and I politely rejected his rejection. And I said, I'm going to go with you because I'm not taking no for an answer. And so I was like, I got to walk with him. And so I started to walk with him, but I didn't want to walk with him side by side because I wanted to look at him straight in the eye. And so I decided I'm going to walk backwards with him in a busy street in London. And I'm going with him. About 15 feet, he finally said, well, really, no, I'm not, no, you know, so I finally said, okay, fine. I gave up, and the moment that I, like, you know, I said, least thank you for time, and I remember, like, I remember, like, trying to get him to be convinced. I was like, buddy, the material that I'm handing you could change your life. Like, come on, that's a horrible pitch, like, right there, you know, and he, he just kept going, so I said, fine, and so once he rejected me again, I just turned around, I said, have a great day, and bam, walked right into a light pole. He stopped dead in his tracks, looked right at me, and laughed, and kept walking. (laughs) I was just like, this was awesome. (laughs) I share all of that because it's important how you walk, okay? It's important how you walk. It can be very dangerous to walk backwards because you don't know what's coming. It can be just as dangerous walking, looking down, right? Now, when we start thinking about this spiritually, we use this phrase, We walk our faith out. We walk in Jesus, which is another way of saying this is how we live it out. It's important how we walk or live out our faith in Jesus. And just like we can be walking well with him, we can also at the same time find ourselves walking in a very dangerous way. There are people in the church who said yes to Jesus. They're walking with him very well in the beginning, but at some point, for some reason, they started to walk backwards. Maybe at some point they're like, yes, I love you, Jesus. You're it. You're sufficient. You're all that I need. And then life starts to happen. Maybe they started to sin and maybe they felt the need to try to prove to God that they're good, try to earn his favor. Maybe they start thinking like, okay, to be a Christian means I believe in Jesus, Plus, I need to do X, Y, and Z. I need to go to Sunday school. I need to give. I need to serve. And once I do all of that, then I'm good, right? And that's kind of like walking down. When you start to control things in your life, when you try to take things into your own hands, that's dangerous. Or you'd walk looking down. Especially as believers, this is equally as dangerous, when you're looking and focusing and, and obsessing with everything around you, your present circumstances, the anxieties and the stressors that are there, and you start, to, you start to take control, and you know what happens in those moments is you actually start to live a very unthankful life because you're looking at all of the issues rather than looking up to Him. It's important with how we walk our faith out because here's the reality. If you walk your faith out looking down or walking backwards, you will leave yourself spiritually vulnerable. To any plausible argument, to any other philosophical argument, to any kind of religious add-on to Jesus, you will become like a tumbleweed that will be easily blown away by any wind. It's so important that Paul had to make another effort to this church in Colossae by saying, listen, I am struggling for you because how you walk your faith out is important if you're going to be seduced away from Jesus or not. And so that turns us to now this morning in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, we are going to begin to see really the burden on Paul's heart. We're going to begin to see the importance of living our faith out within the the church, within community, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because then and only then will we begin to understand every good thing that we have in Jesus. So, don't walk looking down. Don't walk backwards. But walk looking up. Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, you just got to imagine for a moment, okay? Imagine being in a church at Colossae. you never met the apostle Paul before and you're hearing this guy talk about his struggle for you, but he's never met you. And last week, if you were with us, he said he rejoices in his sufferings because he's filling up Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. He's never met you. There's something that happened to Paul when he connected to Jesus, it radically changed him, and he's dwelling or abiding or just living. He made his home in the love of Christ, and as he's done that, guess what? The love of Christ is compelling him, and because when you love someone, you share their burdens and their concerns. And so, because he loves Jesus and he knows that Jesus is everything, when he hears about a church that is struggling, that is being persuaded to demote Jesus or add to Jesus, put him on the same list as other gods in their lives, it breaks his heart. And so he struggles for them. I'm struggling for you. I know you don't know me. I know you haven't seen me, but I am struggling for you. Verse two so that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is struggling for a church he's never met. He's struggling because he loves Jesus. He carries the same burdens that Jesus has. And I'm telling you, God cares. He struggles for people. He's going after those who are lost and he wants people to continue to grow and to be rooted in who he is. Paul even said last week, he's like, listen, I'm all about him. It's him we proclaiming. We're telling everyone about Jesus. We're warning everyone about Jesus. We're teaching everyone about Jesus so that everyone could be mature in Christ, so that everyone can have a fulfilled life in Jesus. That's his passion. So it doesn't matter if he knows you or not. He's compelled by the love of Christ, and because he's compelled by the love of Christ, he's going to struggle for everyone. And that's what happens when you love Jesus you actually begin to find yourself struggling over other people because of what's coming at them. Today's culture is no different than the culture that they faced. I mean, it doesn't take too long to find someone's opinion or someone's philosophy or someone's take on Jesus, right? If you were to Google, is Christianity real? I mean, you're going to find thousands of opinions showing up. There's this onslaught on Jesus. And that breaks Paul's heart. He's like, I'm going to struggle for them. Just like a parent struggles for their children. If you are a mom or dad or a grandpa, grandma, and you have children or grandchildren, you know that struggle. That's what love does. Love causes you to struggle over those you love because you can't control their decisions. You can't control the outcomes. All you can do is nurture them. All you can do is try to reflect the way of life. All you can do is instruct them and in provide environments, but you can't control what they choose. You can't control what happens to them. And that's a struggle, especially if your children are choosing the wrong things. It's painful. And some of you in this room can really resonate with that. And that's the position that Paul is saying. He's like, I'm struggling for you. And this word struggle is really the word agony. I'm agonizing over you. And this word in the Greek, agonize, has this athletic notion there. So imagine me running a mile. You will picture me in agony. Agonize. It's like that, like that last minute in a game, you're absolutely exhausted. You're already given everything you have, but you know the game's not over and you know you still need to give your all. That's agonizing. That's like staying up that extra hour around three in the morning just to be with someone who is struggling. Being with and praying for someone that's so far away, you can't be with them, but you know they're hurting. And so all you can do is pray. That's agonizing. That's the struggle that Paul is dealing with. And that's what happens when we're rooted in the gospel. When you're rooted in the gospel, you will know this struggle. And so as I was wrestling with this passage, I had to ask this question. What is this struggle? What does this struggle look like? Because we'll, we'll read about the Apostle Paul, and he's like, you know, this guy who's, always bold and brash and courageous for Jesus. And you can read his list of sufferings in Second Corinthians 11. He, he's been beaten. He's been whipped with the rod and, you know, been flogged, you know, 40 lashes minus one. He's been shipwrecked. He's always in danger. And he's writing this letter even in prison. And so our brains automatically think that the struggle means physical or mental persecution. But that's not the struggle that Paul is talking about which is fascinating. In fact, if we go two chapters ahead in Colossians, to chapter four, verse 12, Paul gives us a clue as to what the struggle is because he's letting those in Colossae know of the the burden or the struggle that Epaphras is having for the church. Epaphras is the individual who planted this church. And he tells them, he's like, listen, in chapter four, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, A servant of Christ Jesus greets you always, and here it is, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This struggle is a struggle of prayer. Paul's like, I've never met you, but because of the gospel, because of the mystery of God, where there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, black, nor white, rich, nor poor. We're all one in Jesus because I'm intimately connected to you and I'm part of the body and you're part of the same body. Listen, if that part of the body hurts and if that part of the body is vulnerable and that that part of the body is struggling, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to pray. I'm going to keep praying and I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to agonize. Even when I don't want to, I'm going to pray. Like that's the struggle. That Paul is saying, he's like, listen, I'm so passionate for you. Now, what would that do for you as a listener of this letter? If you're sitting there and you heard some guy struggling for you in your faith, in your perspective of Jesus, you have never met him. What would that do for you? I mean, that would make me start thinking, this has got to be real. Like there's something real genuine about this. There's something important about this. He writes all of this for this reason, verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I write this. I'm letting you know that I'm struggling for you. I'm praying for you. And he's going to give a list of some things which I'm going to cover. But he's saying, I'm doing this because I don't want anybody to persuade you or seduce you away from Jesus. I don't want anybody to make you think that Jesus is on the same page with every other God in this world. I don't want you to even comprehend or even to uh, entertain the thought that Jesus isn't number one. And I love what Paul said here, plausible arguments. Plausible arguments, that's important. How many of you have ever heard a plausible argument against Jesus? That you heard it, and just for a moment you went, "Oh, oh," and just in that little moment you felt rattled, like, "What, what if, what if I, uh, what if it's not right? What if what I believe it wasn't true? What, what if it is?" Like I said, you can just Google search this, and you will find many arguments, many opinions about Jesus, and some of them are so ridiculous that you're like, <laughs> but then there are some that you're like. Ooh, that, that, that sounds good. That, that could be. Paul's like, listen, I'm struggling for you because I don't want anyone, I don't want you to be seduced away by what could sound plausible. When I worked with college students, I, I've seen this and I've heard this more times than I can imagine. College students who were professed to be passionate believers in high school, all of a sudden they show up on the campus and next thing you know, they encountered some professor that's an Atheist. More often than not, it happens in the biology and chemistry departments. And they start to hear about evolution and all these types of things. And they start to hear the professor mocking Christianity and even saying that they're so delusional, they're so naive and ignorant, and that it's like the opiate of the masses to quote some other you know, atheists in the past. And also the next thing you know, they're like, that's a plausible argument. Maybe what I believed was a fairy tale that mom and dad told me to believe to keep my behavior in line when I was a kid. Paul's like, No. I am struggling for you that you would never be seduced away from Jesus because He's everything. He's all you need. He's number one. He is the preeminent one. He created all things, and all things were created by Him and for Him. And that's why Paul goes, in my struggle, here's what I'm praying for. Here are the four goals, the four things... I want to see happen in you so that way you are safeguarded, you are not able to be seduced. Look at this in verse 2. Paul is saying, I want your hearts to be encouraged. I'm praying, I'm struggling for you that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's struggling for them in prayer so that their hearts would be encouraged. In other words, that word right there is strengthened. How many of you ever felt strengthened when someone encouraged you? Like in that moment, especially think about spiritually, when there might have been a crisis of faith, maybe when a plausible argument came at you and you were wondering if this is right, or maybe like God isn't showing up in your life, in someone, in some community, in a small group or a sermon or worshipers or whatever, you just felt awesome and encouraged and it strengthened your heart to face whatever is in front of you. Paul is saying, it's like, I'm praying that your hearts are encouraged your heart is a big deal, church. Your heart is a big deal. Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else. In other words, like, this is kind of important. Above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. You can't guard your heart if you're trying to do life alone. You can't do it. Because that's why Paul even says in the next verse, I pray that your hearts would be encouraged, knitted together in love, like knitted together. God's like, listen, the, the, the genius of the church is that we together as brothers and sisters, one as the body of Christ, we together would be strengthened in our hearts as we do life together, as we love one another. And not only that, it's when we love one another that we will begin to experience and understand the fullness of the mystery of Christ. In other words, intellectualism will never help you to understand the fullness of Jesus. It can't. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 3 that we just read about early on, it's like together with all the saints that we would be able to grasp the height, the depth, the width, and the length, this surpassing love of Christ can only be understood and experienced when we're knitted together as a body of believers. We are so tempted to think that if I just know more, If I just study more, if I memorize more, if I read more books, if I attend more uh, church services, if I listen to more sermons of better preachers than Brandon on the podcast, yes, they're out there. I don't know why I said that. Just edit that out. You don't need to translate that either. We're good, right? It's like, we think that intellectualism will help us understand it. Folks, I'm telling you, that's the easy thing to do. As a pastor, there's a line oh my goodness it's a line as a pastor that I, I i just if you say it to me i i don't mean to make fun of you or others I just find it you know kind of humorous when people come up to me they're like pastor just I just want the meat, just give me the meat. I just want to go deep and i'm always like whats what meat are we talking about like you know are we talking about brisket you know like I see. I, I got this. I got. A, I'm trying to see how many times I can slip brisket into a sermon. So we got two in a row, two in a row and counting. Right? It's like we got to have the meat, and we think that the meat simply means knowing more. And we can know more. Quite frankly, you can study and be as intellectual as you want all alone. But that's not God's design. Because the mystery of Christ is that he intimately knits us together as a body and only then when we love one another intimately will we begin to understand the full and the riches of this mystery that we have in Jesus. Only then will that happen. It can only get us so far, our intellect. It's together. And when we're knitted together, that's a vulnerability within community. Because like Jesus did not say, the world will know you're my disciples by your intellect. Praise God, right? Like he, he didn't say that. Rather, the great polemic that we have as believers is that the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Could it be that simple? Could it really be that simple that Jesus said, I want you to focus on two things love God and love others? Could it be that maybe that's the meat? Folks, isn't it easier to study and to know more? It's not as costly, it's cheaper. You don't have to deny yourself there's no self-sacrifice involved you don't have to be vulnerable you don't really have to know anyone you don't really have to give it's not messy it's not church knitted together paul's like listen this is this church thing isn't a human construct, built on some human ingenious thing no no when Jesus instituted the church, he understood that I'm the head, this is the body. We're intimately connected. There's one new humanity. We are knitted together. And as we are knitted together, we grow in love. Guess what? We're going to understand more of Jesus. Oh, by the way, all of the treasures that are hidden, the wisdom and knowledge, they're found in Jesus, not in Gnosticism or any other thing. It's found in him and him alone. And so I say all of that to get to verse 6. Verse 6. Because Paul doesn't want us to be seduced away from Jesus by plausible arguments. He wants us together in a community to have our hearts and courage knitted together in love so that we will come to know more of Jesus, the mystery of God, whom all the treasures of wisdom and understanding are found in. He says, listen, I'm saying this so you stay rooted. So here's the big deal. Therefore, verse 6, therefore as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Just as you started your walk, whenever that was, walk the same way. And I'm going to come back to that. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. You don't need anything else. This is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. And when that happens, there's a bounding in thanksgiving. Paul struggles for this church that he's never seen, that he's never met, so that they would be rooted and built up in him, established and strengthened into faith. And the big, biggest imperative that he gives them is simply this, walk the same way that you received Jesus. And I started thinking about that. I was like, that is a very beautiful picture. I want you to think about the time, your early years, your early seasons as a believer. Now, I understand in a room this size, we all have different stories and how we became Christians. Some of us have radical conversion stories. Maybe you were like the heathen of all heathens and stuck in sin and doing horrible things that legends are made of, and Jesus came and saved you, and now you're a radical transformation. And there's other of us like, you know, you don't know exactly when it happened. But you love Jesus and you're walking with him, and you just remember that as a kid at some moment and at a Sunday school class or with mom and dad or a VBS, you know, you gave your life to Jesus and it just took shape over the years. And there's some of us that go, Oh no, I can tell you the exact time, the exact minute, in second, location, date, I can tell you the weather, I can tell you the smells around me, I can tell you everything about when it happened. Right? It's like Paul's like saying. Think back to those days, those early moments when you received Jesus like a child. When he was enough. When you were overwhelmed that God wanted to have a relationship with you. When you wanted nothing to do with him. Like, be overwhelmed in gratitude and humility that, oh my goodness, I am a sinner and God who's so good and so holy, he gave it all. He sent his one and only son to die for me. Like, whoa, I want to live for you forever. And like any Christian song, even if it's like the worst musically written song ever, still draws your heart into worship because you so love Jesus. Like he's saying, remember those days when there was so much joy and you couldn't get enough, and you just wanted to learn him, and you wanted to be with people, and you wanted to tell people about him. Like, walk that way. In other words, the best way I like to say it is, don't change your strut. Man, come on. Like, help a brother out. Come on. Like, come on. You gotta like John Travolta, right? Come on. Don't change your strut. You're not all of a sudden going to become so sophisticated that you graduated from the gospel. You're not at some point going to move on from the basics of Jesus. It's just like last week we said, preach the gospel to yourself. Martin Luther, he'd said over and over, the great reformer, he said, Christianity, Christian growth, always comes when you begin again. Walk that way. Walk that way. But not only that, it's important for us to realize how we saw Jesus. And that's why Paul said, Christ Jesus the Lord. When you became a Christian, you recognized Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one who gave his life, his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, the price for our freedom. Don't forget that. You also received him as Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, took on flesh, the champion of our souls. Don't forget that. But you also came to him as Lord as sovereign, the one to whom everything in my life bows. My will, my ambition, and when you received Him as Lord, you were thrilled to bow everything at His feet. But at some point, in our walk with Jesus, do we not begin to look down and fail to remember who He is? And as we walk looking down, We're so fixated on everything around us that we begin to take control of our lives again. And we start to act as Lord of our lives. And when, here's the reality, and when you start to act as Lord of your life, you're gonna have a miserable life. Full of anxiety and stress and insecurity and pride, trying to prove to other people that you're worthy of something, trying to prove to God that you're worthy of something. And the end result is an ungrateful life. Not growing in love of God. You come out of church, out of duty and obligation, wondering if it's real. I'm just here. I'm just, put the gold star behind my name. I showed up. It's dangerous. And that's why Paul's like, listen. It's important how you walk. Walk like a child. You don't need anything else. Walk the same way you received them as Christ Jesus the Lord. Be rooted in him. Don't be a tumbleweed, something I'm learning in Texas. The the lightest breeze can uproot that thing. The slightest plausible argument, an ungrateful life, a life that's walking, looking down, the slightest plausible argument can throw you off for weeks or months or years. And that's why Paul's like, no, you walk looking up. Remembering who he is. You will be built up and strengthened in the faith with each other. And then you will be abounding. Abounding in thankfulness. It doesn't matter if you're struggling. It doesn't matter if you're suffering. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Because you're looking up. You know who He is. He's Christ Jesus the Lord. You know that nothing could ever separate you from the love of God. You know that He makes all things turn out for good. You know that you can rejoice always in Him because you know where you're going. You know that the hope of, you know, the Christ is our hope of glory, right? We're dwelling in Him. We know all of that stuff. When we're living looking up, we are always fixated on Him and not our problems and understanding that He can change the problems. But even if He doesn't change the problems, He said, Take heart, I've overcome the world, and this life is temporary. We can keep looking up. And when you live a life looking up, you're going to be abounding in thankfulness. Thankfulness is one of the clearest marks of a healthy walk. If you want to know if a plant is healthy, look at the leaves. Are they green? Is it fruitful? If your walk with Jesus doesn't overflow in thankfulness, I want to challenge you. Ask yourself the question Am I looking up or looking down? Thankfulness is always a sign of spiritual health. And that's why we're told in the Bible give thanks in five out of 10 circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. So this morning, this is a great opportunity for us as a body of believers to come together and celebrate communion. Because when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, different ethnicities, different genders, different economic backgrounds, I love it. When we come together and we reflect and focus on the gospel, we will grow in our love for one another. We will grow and understand our love that we have for Jesus and his love that he has for us. So in this moment, before we take communion, I want to encourage you to spend some time thinking again about how God loves you. And, okay, seriously, I want you to do this. Think about how God loves you, but then remember those early seasons, those early moments of walking with Jesus, what was it like? What were you like? What was in your heart? What was moving your heart? How did you love him? How did he speak to you? How did he feed you? What was church like? What was giving like? Just remember those times when you were walking with him early on. Because as you do that, I promise you, By the end of this service, you're going to be overflowing in thankfulness. And that's how he wants us to walk out our faith. So Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you are so good that you constantly are pursuing us, that you never pursue us out of guilt or shame. You're never trying to guilt us back to you, but you're always trying to love us back to you. We thank you that you show us clearly the best ways for us to live life you show us what you desire for us you desire for our hearts to be strengthened because we know because you know we're living in a hostile world or you know that the best way for us to understand your love and to stay rooted is to be knitted together with other brothers and sisters in christ Lord, I'm asking that you would give us the faith and the courage to take these truths as reality and to uh, dig those deep into our hearts. But Father, in this moment, in this time of remembering the gospel, the death and resurrection, Lord, I'm asking that you would bring back the memories of how we received you and what those seasons were like, what those early moments were like. And God, out of that, I pray that your spirit would give us a resolve to walk that way. So speak, Lord. We open our hearts to you. In Christ's name.